little things are important but won't achieve what we're looking for. We need to think big. We need to think very big. And we need to act with urgency. And from the Australian perspective, if we get it all right, we can be a leader. We can set a global example, supporting our region and deriving the economic benefits from the export industries. That's Dr. Alan Finkel, the former chief scientist and presently the federal government's advisor on new technology. Dr. Finkel was delivering the Finkel Oration just today at the Australian Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering. Welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I'm your host, Robert McLean. Climate Conversations is assembled here in Shepparton, in Northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. We'll listen some more to Dr. Finkel, and then we'll hear him in conversation with Dr. Helen Clough, who is the post-retirement fellow with the CSIRO. I should mention that Dr. Finkel began with the bad news. Then he got on to the good news, and that's about where we pick him up. So let's hear him now talking about the good news. So, enough about the bad. Let's talk about the good. The good is that we do know what to do. The answer is to use zero emissions electricity for everything, for all of our energy requirements. And where electricity as electrons is inadequate, we'll do electricity into uh, hydrogen and derivatives. Going back to the electricity, I should point out that the growth that we're going to need, and it's a lot of growth in Australia, I personally can't see any alternative to nearly all of that growth coming from wind and solar electricity, which is fine because we are absolutely blessed. We've got the land, we've got the wind, we've got the sunshine, uh, and we've got the resource know-how. In some countries that are not as lucky as us, they will also tap into nuclear electricity and hydroelectricity. But ultimately, we need to use zero emissions electricity for everything, and as I said, we're the uh, electricity is not convenient, we can use the electricity to make hydrogen and ammonia and synthetic fuels for the final delivery of the energy source. I put it to you here that eliminating fossil fuels, taking them out of that graph I showed you earlier, will be the biggest deliberate transformation in human civilization ever, certainly since the beginning of agriculture. And if you look at the left-hand picture that's probably to scale about a 15th of the total energy that we're delivering through solar and wind and renewables compared to uh, fossil fuels, we need to expand the renewables and actually eliminate the fossil fuel energy. And if we do it, if we achieve this grand transformation, I wouldn't be surprised if future historians and uh, anthropologists will look at this as being the shift from the industrial age to the electric age. We know what to do, but one of the factors that is significantly rate limiting is the supply chain. I, finance is also incredibly important as is government policy and community engagement, but the supply chain is turning out to be a rate limiting factor. And I'm very aware of this because I was invited by the government to chair a forum called the Sydney Energy Forum, which was an Australian government hosted conference on the supply chain across the Indo-Pacific to support the clean energy transition. And the messages from the forum were clear. The first is that the demand for clean energy 
the demand for resources to support the clean energy transition, it's actually outstripping the rate of resource development. So we're already starting to get into a difficult position. Um, we need to worry about the resilience and diversities across the, the energy supply chain if we want to ensure energy security. That successful markets depend on transparency and pe pe people knowing what they're buying and therefore we need certification schemes to make it clear when you're buying something that claims to be green seal or green aluminium or green hydrogen or zero emissions hydrogen that you're getting what you're paying for. And effectively the the geopolitics is changing there's going to be a displacement of some of the very powerful petrostates by equally powerful or certainly very powerful electrostates so what are the global priorities i'm not confining myself just to australia here what are the global priorities for building these supply chains the first i'm going to go through three or four groups is what i call and i Pick this up from others, the energy transition materials. I find that a slightly more convenient terminology than saying critical minerals or critical materials, because we also need things that have never been thought of as a critical material, such as copper. The demand for copper is expected to increase by up to threefold off a huge starting base by 2050. Then you've got those critical minerals, lithium, manganese, cobalt, nickel, and things like that for batteries and motors, and lithium itself will have to increase by fivefold, maybe tenfold, we don't really know. And then you've got the rare earths, neodymium, yttrium, lanthanum, the things that are used to make uh, some of the high voltage electronics and very much the uh, permanent strong magnets that go into the motors in our electric vehicles and our wind turbines. So energy transition materials is an important category of the supply chain. Then we need abundant low cost clean electricity. Now you might think of that as an output of the clean energy transition, but it's actually an input as well, because virtually everything we do as we transform the energy economy depends on abundant availability of zero emissions electricity. And certainly in Australia, but in many countries, that will primarily come from solar and wind generation. And I put in a figure of times 20 there, no one really knows, but could be a bit less, but I, I went for a higher figure because we've also, also got to produce the electricity that will be used to make hydrogen and ammonia, and that's a relatively inefficient process. So we will need more electricity than you might otherwise think. To deliver that low cost clean electricity, we need transmission lines. I'll talk more about that later, but that's a, a significant challenge in terms of um, rolling them out. And we need firming to unlock the potential of solar and wind. And firming could be batteries, could be pumped hydro, but depending on the appetite of communities, it could also be gas used as a firming resource, but generating very little total energy during the course of the year, but being there to firm up the solar and wind. We need shipping capabilities. I've got three different categories there, ship, ex exporting or shipping hydrogen, ammonia, and value-added products. Shipping hydrogen is difficult. When I led the National Hydrogen Strategy 
um, you know, we were all excited about the demand for hydrogen around the world and thinking that a lot of that would be exported as perhaps liquid hydrogen or some derivative. And that picture there shows an existing ship called the Suiso Frontier, which is a liquefied hydrogen carrier ship. It's the only one in the world made by Kawasaki Heavy Industries. And it turns out that the energy involved in making liquefied hydrogen and the ships themselves, it's all expensive and people are looking for alternatives. Well, the obvious alternative is to convert the hydrogen in the country where the hydrogen was produced into ammonia and export the hydrogen bound to a nitrogen atom uh, as ammonia. And for some applications, such as transport fuel for maritime ship, the maritime fleet ships, uh, or for replacing coal in, in coal-fired generators in Japan, the ammonia can be used as a fuel. And so that's potentially going to be a, a, a more significant in volume means of exporting hydrogen than hydrogen itself. But the more and more I've looked into this, I realized that probably the best way for a country like Australia to be exporting the hydrogen, the, the, the solar energy, the wind energy, and the hydrogen produced from that is in value-added products. Elemental iron is one of them. So at the moment, iron, of course, is reduced by using uh, metallurgical coal, both for heat and as a chemical reduction agent. But in future, to make green steel, that first step of reducing the iron is likely to be done by hydrogen reduction. And there is a good argument for doing that in a country like Australia, and I'll talk more about that later. Uh, aluminium uh, refined or smelted using solar and wind electricity is a fantastic product, high density product to export. There's 17 megawatt hours of electricity that goes into smelting one tonne of aluminium. And that's why a lot of people refer to aluminium as congealed electricity. Uh, ammonia into fertilizer and um, other things I'll elaborate on later, in particular with synthetic fuels, such as for aviation or other specialty applications. And finally, um, well-functioning markets. Governments can afford to stimulate the transition, but they can't afford to run the transition. We need well-functioning markets. The private sector has to uh, finance the bulk of the transition. And well-functioning markets will only work effectively if the supply chain uh, materials come from diverse sources. So for example, one of the major metals that goes into batteries is cobalt, and most of the cobalt comes from the one country, and it's ethically challenged, the Democratic Republic of Congo. So that has to be expanded. Um, there's got to be a strong investment case for the investors, which means they've got to have a good understanding of a, a steady government policy, and there has to be transparency in the market, which will depend on certification of those goods. Now, there are already policy levers delivering action. If you look at the established ones in Australia, coming from governments of both persuasions over really nearly two decades, mm. we've got ARENA and the CEFC funding demonstration and deployment or co-funding demonstration and deployment. Uh, we've got the renewable energy target that has pretty successfully uh, brought solar and wind energy into the system. Uh, we've got international partnerships to do demonstration projects in clean technologies. The states have been very active with contracts for difference and reverse auction programs. And now we've got hydrogen hubs. I want to spend a minute or two talking about the 
um, act passed just a couple of months ago in the United States called the ridiculously called the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. But it's putting nearly $370 billion of directed investment through subsidies and tax credits into the clean energy transition over the next 10 years. And it's focused on solar and wind and electric vehicles. And the next three, I'm actually gonna give you the, the, the numbers, hydrogen hubs, hydrogen subsidy and CCS. So there are four hydrogen hubs being funded at $2 billion US per hub. That's a massive amount of money and that'll be matched by enormous amount of private sector money. So that's the sort of level that will be transformational for the hydrogen industry in the US. And then on top of that, they've just brought in a hydrogen subsidy of $3 per kilogram. Now, most of you will know that the Australian government target has been expressed as about $2 Australian per kilogram. There are apparently places in America where through renewable hydrogen, they're producing it at the production facility gate at around about $5 per kilogram. So this $3 per kilogram subsidy will already get them into the at, to the point where hydrogen starts to become a viable fuel for transport and other purposes. It's an enormous subsidy, that $3 per kilogram. And carbon capture and storage um, has enjoyed in America a $30 per tonne tax credit for many years. And that has actually led to um, America being the uh, highest, the country with the highest amount of carbon capture and storage per year. But they've now increased it from $30 to $85 per tonne. And most people I speak to think that this will be transformational for the potential of CCS to contribute to taking carbon dioxide out of processes or out of the atmosphere. And they've also extended the life for nuclear plants. But here's probably the most significant thing. It's the approach that they're using. Everything in there is an incentive, a subsidy or a tax credit. There are no carbon taxes in this big bill. There are no cap and trade um, programs in this big bill. It's all carrot, no stick. And I think the logic is that if you just rely on carbon taxes of some kind, there's no surety that the monetary flows will push industry into the most effective low emissions technologies that will deliver the long-term benefits. But by nudging them towards the electric vehicles and hydrogen production that we need, the government is convinced that overall, it will get the, boat, the most benefit. So just an interesting point. Um, look, just quickly going through some other countries, England's been one of the leaders. Uh, they set a legally binding carbon budget and they've got mechanisms such as feeding tariffs and new nuclear plants underway. Denmark's been quite remarkable. They have the highest penetration of variable renewable electricity and it's all wind or nearly all of it's wind, but they're at 50% of the dispatch generation coming from wind. And there's some of the tools that they've used, but they've also been quite strategic about this since 1974 as their response to the uh, oil crisis back then. And uh, Germany has also been uh, instrumental in, uh, through its subsidies, driving, helping industry drive down the cost of solar and wind, and uh, they're benefiting as the whole world is benefiting from those investments. I think that Australia is well positioned to achieve net zero. It won't be easy, but we can do it. We're, we're, we've got the focus now and we've got the resources. And 
Well, we're doing that in a world that's not moving as fast. Some countries for sure are moving even faster than us, but overall the world's not moving as fast. But we have an opportunity to set a global example alongside some of the countries I've just mentioned. We can support our region, the Pacific Island and, and Southeast Asia. And importantly, we can derive economic and jobs benefits through the export opportunities that will come through the clean energy transition. I uh, had to put this photo in, it's one of my favorite photos. It's illustrative of us working with others in our region. What you see there are two Australian drivers and Patrick Hartley is the one on the left. You have to guess who the one on the right is. Two Japanese built Toyota Mirai hydrogen powered cars at an Australian location, the port of Hastings in Victoria with the Suiso Frontier, the world's one and only liquefied hydrogen carrier ship sitting there in the background already loaded with liquid hydrogen produced in Australia, ready to be taken back to Japan. Um, some of the recent initiatives that are worth focusing on in Australia, uh, the Guarantee of Origins Emissions Intensity Pilot Program. This is a program being run by the Clean Energy Regulator. It started, I think, in December of last year. It's funded by the Australian government. And it's looking at how you measure all of the emissions in the whole of the process for producing hydrogen, whether it's produced from fossil fuels, so-called blue hydrogen, or whether it's renewably uh, electricity sourced, or renewable electricity sourced hydrogen, so-called green hydrogen, irrespective, how do you measure all of the byproduct emissions that might be associated with the process and tag every kilogram or every ton of hydrogen produced with a certificate that says what the emissions intensity, the emissions of byproduct CO2 was in say kilograms per kilogram of hydrogen produced. So it's not a color coded scheme. It's an emissions intensity scheme that I believe will support robust trade in hydrogen and ultimately if expanded in other materials such as green steel. Now it's not as if other things aren't happening in the world but the Australian project is based on a, a consortium called the International Party, um, Partnership for Hydrogen in the Economy which has got 22 countries in it and Australia's taken the lead in actually piloting a program. Uh, the Offshore Electricity Infrastructure Act got passed recently or last year which is um, really enabling a number of offshore wind projects to come forward. And if you look at the results just for the last few years, we pretty much doubled the solar and wind generated, not, not talking about the installed capacity, but I'm talking about the delivered generated electricity in the course of a year, doubled from 2018 to 2021 from 12% to 24%, following three years of record investment. And we are now at the point where we have the world's highest rate of solar per person. So the little image at the bottom is, is my way of conveying to you that we are shifting the dial. And now there are new initiatives that have been very recently brought in that will accelerate the transition. So the new government has got the Powering Australia program, which has significantly $20 billion in funding to rewire the nation. That's the transmission lines that we need to carry all the electricity that we're going to be producing. It'll invest in batteries and solar and community batteries and solar banks, and it will support the electric vehicle uptake. Uh, they've also got a national reconstruction fund, which is uh, much bigger than three billion, but it includes three billion specifically for some of the clean energy transition things, such as green metals, uh, indicated by uh, green steel link in the chain below. Clean energy components are things like hydrogen tanks and electrolyzers. So, how do we speed up the supply chain 
globally, not just in Australia, for emissions for energy transition materials. So if you look at the, the materials, we need to simplify in Australia and in other countries, the regulatory thicket. It can take years and years and years to get through the environmental and related uh, regulatory approvals from local government, state government, federal governments across multiple agencies. And secondly, in all countries where mining is expanding, there has to be the development of equitable solutions so that communities that are affected are appropriately supported. You can't force social license onto communities. It's irresponsible to push into a, into a, into a landholder's area. You have to earn that social license. And the challenge is that about, it's predicted that about 60% of all the new mines that we're going to need and expanded mines that we're going to need over the next 30 years, about 60% of them will either be on or infringing upon or adjacent to First Nations land. So that's a big challenge. Now, if I ask the same question about how we can speed up the supply chain globally for transmission lines, the answers are exactly the same. We've got to simplify the regulatory thicket and we've got to develop equitable solutions to earn social license. The amount of money involved is huge. The International Monetary Fund estimates that we'll, we're going to need up to six trillion US dollars per year till 2050, not necessarily starting tomorrow, but this decade and right through till 2050. At the moment, the spend globally is just over $600 billion per year. So we're looking at up to a tenfold increase in the amount of money that needs to go into the clean energy transition. That's huge, but it also means huge opportunities as the nature of our uh, energy system changes. And so I wanna finish off by talking about some Australian projects, which I'll call moonshots, it's probably uh, overusing the word moonshots. And I want to talk about where ATSI perhaps can add value to the discussion because ATSI is already a recognised thought leader. And I'd love it if ATSI can um, do work in the following areas that I'm about to list. So there's five coming, electrolyzer manufacturing, DACCS, that's direct air capture and carbon capture and storage, direct air carbon capture and storage, synthetic fuels in particular jet fuel because aviation is probably the hardest long distance aviation is the hardest nut to crack so solar kerosene if you like hot briquetted iron i'll explain that in a moment and hydrogen storage so i'm going to spend a little bit of time on each of these five and then we're done so as the adding value in the discussion around electrolyzers if we are successful in replacing our existing LNG exports with hydrogen in equivalent energy terms, not tonne for tonne, but the same amount of energy, we're going to need eight Aussie watt hours. Now, most of you will say, what, what on earth is an Aussie watt hour? It's something I made up, so don't be surprised you don't know what it is. People find it, I found that people found it find it difficult to really understand the enormity of what we're trying to do. People have heard of kilowatt hours, megawatt hours, gigawatt hours, and terawatt hours. An, eight, an Aussie watt hour is the annual output of electricity across Australia, west to east, south to north of electricity. It's currently running about 265 terawatt hours. So if you like, one Aussie watt hour is 265 terawatt hours of electricity. We're going to need eight of those to produce the hydrogen that would give us the energy equivalent of our current LNG exports. 
And that would require about 600,000 megawatts of electrolysis in Australia, installed in Australia, with the appropriate solar and wind to feed it. Now, globally, the installed, not the annual production, but the installed capacity of electrolysis globally at the end of 2020 was 300 megawatts, 600,000 megawatts required to be installed in Australia compared to the cumulative installed globally so far of 300 megawatts. It's a huge scale up that is going to be required. So imagine if we were making electrolyzers in Australia. And I put it to you that unlike cars, it makes really good sense because we potentially will be the world's biggest electrolyzer market. And it's already happening. There's a local company out of the University of Wollongong that has formed and already raised $42 million for their extremely high efficiency electrolyzer design. Next one, DAX. DAX is essential for achieving the final offsets and ultimately achieving net zero. You know, really, as long as human beings are walking on the surface of the earth, we will never get to zero emissions. We need to do something to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. The trouble with direct air capture is it uses lots and lots and lots and lots of solar and wind electricity, which adds up to a lot of dollars. In other words, it's very expensive, but it's, it's really good because it's physics. If you bury one tonne and get one tonne credit, if you get one tonne of credit for what you've done, that's one, exactly one tonne buried essentially forever. You can't say that about nature-based solutions. I'm not criticizing nature-based solutions. The ones that we have in Australia are probably at as good as good or better than anything in the world, but they're never perfect because they depend on so many factors. And it's an enormous export opportunity for Australia to be exporting uh, the DAX credits. Uh, it's already in development. Um, there's a little company called Southern Green Gas in Australia that is, if you look at the left-hand picture, it's like a little pup tent. And their, their, their vision is to make these absolutely standalone units that can take one or two tonnes of carbon dioxide out of the air each year. It's not much, but it's a modular design and they'll you know, install them by the hundreds of thousands or millions. And through that modularity, it's a little bit like solar panels, they'll cut the cost of the capex and the walls of that unit are the solar panels. So there's no distinction between the cost of electricity and the capex. And they're pretty confident in that approach. Uh, there's a company called Climeworks it's getting a lot of press coverage uh, who's doing similar things in Iceland or DAX in Iceland, but but the more conventional approach where they've got a large centralized facility with big fans and the electricity is produced mm -hmm. offsite. Uh, solar kerosene, all the airlines recognize that for long distance flying, at this stage, they can't see an alternative than a replacement fuel, a synthetic kerosene, jet fuel is kerosene. They're looking for a synthetic fuel for those long haul flights. So what is solar kerosene? You start with carbon dioxide from the air using direct air capture. You add hydrogen that has come from water electrolysis. Both of those are powered by solar and wind electricity. So you need a lot of available solar and wind electricity. And what you do then is synthesize kerosene, which is just a hydrocarbon ranging from C12H26 to C15H32. This could be the savior for long distance aviation. Uh, fourth one is hot briquetted iron. So currently, coal, uh, 
iron, what you put in the blast furnace is metallurgical coal and iron ore. But for green steel, you need to start off with green iron, elemental iron. And that uses renewable electricity and renewable hydrogen and iron ore. And shipping that internationally is not cost effective because if we would be shipping it to a, a resource poor country like say Japan or South Korea, where they don't have a lot of renewable electricity and we would be shipping maybe three or four ships of hydrogen where previously you were shipping one ship of coal and the ship that's taking the hydrogen might cost a billion dollars to build, whereas a coal carrier might only be 100 to $150 million, the economics are really tough. So the shipping economics are, are expensive and the destination country requiring renewable energy makes the um, equation for them not compelling. So we could in Australia do that first step. So the brace shows the renewable electricity, the hydrogen, the iron ore being used to make what is called hot briquetted iron, which is just elemental iron that has been reduced using hydrogen, created by reducing iron oxide into elemental iron, compressed into little briquettes, popped on a ship, and then in the destination country goes into an electric arc furnace and gets processed to make steel. So it totally changes the value chain. What we don't know in Australia, and this is where ATSI thinking could help to bring people together, or actually leadership could help to bring people together. We don't know how easy it is to use hematite in this process. Well, actually, we do know that it's difficult to use hematite, but there will be solutions. One is to walk away from hematite, which would be a major um, a major step and try to use magnetite, but we've got huge reserves of hematite. And there are a lot of people looking into how to do that hydrogen reduced iron process using hematite as the input uh, iron ore ingredient. And I think it can be done, but the more we can coordinate the thinking around that, the more efficiently it will be achieved. Slide here is the hydrogen storage. Um, sounds so unimportant if you like, but it's difficult. No one's worked out how to store hydrogens for the industrial processes uh, or for, say, electricity backup purposes, purposes economically. Uh, liquid storage is the most condensed, high density, but very expensive. You can do gaseous storage, but in pipes and other things, but what about the price and the area? Maybe the answer is metal hydrides. It's difficult. We need to do some coordinated thinking on storage. So my conclusion here, is pretty obvious. Little things are important, but won't achieve what we're looking for. We need to think big. We need to think very big. And we need to act with urgency. And from the Australian perspective, if we get it all right, we can be a leader. We can set a global example, supporting our region and deriving the economic benefits from the export industries. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Uh, great presentation. Um, We've got quite a few questions coming in, so I will um, go through them. I'll just address one of the early ones that came in for everyone's benefit, that the recording of this will be made available on the ATSI website. Um, you can look at the answered question yourself to the response from ATSI, so just to reassure you. So let's get into, into some of the questions. Um, I will actually go up to the top and start with a couple that have come in about shipping sunshine. So right. Warwick asks about shipping sunshine as value added products is great, um, but adding value to our raw materials has been a lost opportunity for many decades. 
because of our lack of being competitive. Is there a way that we can change that and how? Yeah, look, Warwick is absolutely right. The, the, the imperative to add value to what we dig out of the ground has been there and discussed for a long time. Um, at the moment, say, in the iron ore industry, the added value is crushing big rocks. It's little rocks before you put them on a ship. Um, but it's, it's very different this time. Let's just stick with the iron ore example. The whole economics change. If, if, if the country that currently is producing huge amounts of steel is not resource rich and has to import everything it needs, they have to look for an alternative. You know, hydrogen is expensive to make. It's probably going to be more expensive to ship than to make. We might get, in fact, I think we will, we'll get renewable hydrogen down to the, you know, dollar Australian at the farm gate or in, in an integrated facility. But if we wanted to ship it as hydrogen, it's hard to see how that would get below about $2 a kilogram. So if we're making hydrogen here and shipping it to a customer country and then shipping iron ore so that they can reduce the iron ore into elemental iron, the economics for them are not good. There is a logic for them to do a joint venture and co-invest with Australian producers to build the, the integrated solar, wind, hydrogen, direct reduce iron furnace facility in Australia that will make the hot briquetted iron pellets, which are incredibly high density and easy and cheap to ship. I'm not proposing that we go to the next step to make steel, because steel is a very specialised product and you know, each of the existing steel makers know what they're trying to make and they've got huge you know, different chemistries for the alloys and different fabrication requirements. But there's, what I'm saying, there's a changed imperative that makes value add sensible. You can make the same argument for direct air, direct air capture. You can make the same argument for fertilizers um, and ultimately for a new product, which would be the synthetic jet fuel. Thank you. And sort of on a linked topic, and maybe you feel you've already answered it, but uh, John Soderbaum asks about what do you see as the potential for Australia to export electricity made from renewable energy? Well, there's two ways to export electricity made from renewable electricity. John's calling it electricity. I like to call it sunshine, but we're talking about the same thing. You can send it as electrons. And so there's a project vast in scope called Sun Cable that is uh, looking to um, build a very large tens of gigawatts solar and wind farm in just north of um, Alice Springs with batteries, feed that into a high voltage transmission line going to the uh, not far from Darwin, supply the local area, but most importantly, go into an undersea cable 4,200 kilometres to Singapore. And if the economics work and Singapore uh, is willing to buy it, and they might, um, then you'd be shipping solar and wind electricity as electrons. And by having the batteries at the source end, they could actually utilise the cable at two gigawatts, 24 hours a day. So they've done all the right thinking to minimise the costs. Um, I don't know their current state of discussions with the Singapore government, but if it does go ahead, that would be an extraordinary, extraordinarily exciting engineering achievement and would be truly exporting solar and wind electricity as electricity. 
But Helen, as you flagged, I've sort of answered the, the rest of the question that the other way to ship that electricity is, is in all those produced products, hydrogen derivatives and manufactured products. Thanks. Thanks, Ellen. Um, I'm going to turn to, a, um, where do I put this, the inadvertent consequences side of, um, you know, we, we've all learned from the past when new technologies have come in and, you know, to be mindful of the things that we weren't expecting that can happen. So I've got a question sort of along those lines from Jenny, and then I'm going to take the moderator's prerogative and ask one from me. Um, so Jenny asks, Jenny Stauber, um, decarbonisation and increased demand for the energy transition materials will likely require resources beyond land-based mining and recycling, such as deep sea mining, which has its own environmental challenges, including social acceptance. You touched on that. Could we be doing more harm as well as good in this transition? Uh, Jenny, that's a fair question. There's no, there is potential to do harm in the transition if we go full steam ahead without consideration of local environmental considerations and community needs. And, and I was touching on that. Uh, the expansion of mining resources will be very, very significant. And we have to do it with full consideration for communities that are affected and for the local environment. But we don't have much of a choice. You, you mentioned going undersea. That would have significant environmental risks as well. And managing those environmental risks or minimising those environmental risks, working deep under the sea, will probably be more, significantly more expensive than trying to manage them well onshore. Um, we don't know for certain whether there are enough reserves for everything that will be requir required to get to net zero, but historically it always turns out that when the demand is there, ingenuity comes to the fore and we, you know, miners and geoscientists work out new ways of extracting and discovering resources. So my personal feeling is there will be enough resources on land, but it'll be a big challenge to extract those resources and process them with minimal, minimal harm to the uh, local communities and the local environment. But we don't have a choice. We can't just achieve global emissions reduction and, and uh, reduction of global warming and climate change um, without consideration for local concerns. Similarly, we can't make those, or equivalent, we can't make those local concerns uh, prevent us from achieving the energy transition we need to do. We just have to solve a complex multivariate problem. And people who are fellows of ATSI should be pretty good at doing that and providing some advice and leadership. Complex multivariate problem. Yeah, thank you. I, I can't help but agree. And, and I've got a couple more on the side different but, but similar lines. Um, so the one from me was actually, I know that many of my atmospheric science colleagues are actually concerned about hydrogen leakage because hydrogen as a gas is, um, I'm, I'm not a chemist, but I'm advised that it can, um, you know, contribute could, could make things worse in terms of the reactive chemistry. Now, again, I, I, don't, I don't, for today, I don't want to, to get into a big discussion about that, but maybe the comment from me is we can learn from other uh, out the past and, and think about what we put in place to monitor, regulate and, and, and explore the problem in all its dimensions, not just in a single variable way, if, if maybe that's more of a comment than asking you. But if you have a response, but, well, I would welcome like to it. That, Helen. I, I agree with what you said, but let me be more specific. Uh, this is something I looked into a couple of months ago, because about two months ago, 
two papers were published on the United Kingdom government website, the Department of um, Energy, I'll use the short name. Um, and one of them was um, based or, or publishing research that showed that hydrogen has a global warming potential of about 11, which is pretty much twice what had previously been considered. So just for those who are not totally familiar with these things, carbon dioxide is on a global warming potential of 100 years, uh, treated as having a potential global warming potential of exactly one. Um, methane, I think, is around about 28 or 30 on that time frame. And um, hydrogen, I think they were using the 100-year uh, global warming potential. They came up with a figure of 11, which is significant. That means it's per, per concentration unit, it's 11 times more significant than carbon dioxide. And the other paper... Um, did some modelling on just how much leakage there might be across the system from production to transport and to utilisation. I have no problems whatsoever with the first paper on the global warming potential. It's way beyond my ken. When I read it, it sounded very credible, and it's consistent with what I've heard from Australian scientists in the past, just gone up a bit from 5.5 to 11. Um, but the paper on leakage was stunning. It was talking about leakage rates of, oh, look, I can't be exact here, but maybe 10% during the electrolysis process and over a year, 13% leakage from uh, shipping transport and things like that. These are massive percentages, massive percentages. Now think about what it would mean if an electrolysis facility had leakage rates of 10% of the hydrogen produced. First of all, there's the economic costs. Hydrogen's expensive. But what about danger? Hydrogen is a fuel. It burns. So all these plants will be modern plants, and I would expect that the leakage rate will be extraordinarily low. I've visited large electrolysis plants, and they have hydrogen detectors all over the place. The workers wear badges for detecting hydrogen leaks. The intention is to have no leakage. And I've got one personal anecdote on this. Um, I mentioned that ship, the Suiso Frontier, and I had the privilege about two months ago of visiting it at the Port of Hastings on its second trip to Australia. There were just five of us, and the captain took us on board and spent two hours with us showing us everything. And he was really knowledgeable, and they have a lot of measurements. And the reality is that, yes, when you've got liquefied hydrogen in a tank, they don't have cryogenic pumps to keep it cool. They allow a little bit to vaporise every day. And the little bit that vaporises every day cools down, just like perspiration cools what remains. And the boil-off rate, uh, they had measured it on their journey as 0.15% per day. Now, that adds up. 0.15% is very low, but it adds up. But here's the important thing. Every single molecule, well, I'm exaggerating, but all of the hydrogen that was boiling off was just being captured and burned. So the only thing being released to the atmosphere was water vapour. So it really doesn't matter in that case what the global warming potential is because, you know, global warming potential of 11 times zero is zero. So I agree with you. We need to be concerned in principle but we need to be realistic and we need to manage the situation. And I don't actually even think that government will have to step in because I can't imagine a facility operator allowing hydrogen to leak in their trucks, in their electrolysis machines, in an aero turbine um, or in a ship. 
Thank you. Um, it won't surprise you to know that we've got quite a few questions and I won't read out the individual questions for each of them. I'm just going to bunch them, uh, which is around whether we can really get to net zero without nuclear. Um, there are, <laughs> so as I said, that won't surprise you, but I, because we have had three or four, I did feel that I wanted to get a response from you on, on that, Alan. Um, I, I guess the main sort of thrust of the questions, you know, why aren't we talking about nuclear um, um, you know, can we really get there without nuclear power? So maybe I'll just hand over to you to, to respond. So, so nuclear is, without doubt, um, from an engineering point of view, a superb zero emissions generator. It's truly zero emissions. The life cycle analysis is, shows that it's pretty low on the life cycle analysis as well. And it's got all the practical attributes of a good generator. It's synchronous. It's got system strength. It's got good inertia, fast frequency response, and it's dispatchable. You can generate the electricity when you need it. And solar and wind don't have any of those characteristics that I just mentioned. What they share is zero emissions. Um, so integrating solar and wind into 100% solar and wind or nearly 100% um, or variable renewable energy electricity supply is, is difficult. You need firming batteries, pumped hydro, maybe a little bit of gas for firming it as well. So it's a fair question, why not use nuclear? Um, and the answer revolves, always resolves down to two things, social license and cost. In Australia, currently there is no social license. I know the surveys are showing that there's growing interest across Australia, but it's nowhere near the level that would justify a government you know, seriously considering it. I think governments, it's up to government, but I would expect that a government would want to go to an election with nuclear as one of the um, platforms rather than suddenly try to introduce it midstream. But that's a political issue that I don't want to dive into. But the reality is it's legislated against in Australia and there's no social license. And it's not obvious to me that that will change uh, in the next few years. And so realistically, by the time you get change the legislation, start investing, building the workforce, find the right nuclear technology, um, go through all the regulatory hurdles that will be required for both environmental considerations and social license. Um, it's hard to see any nuclear in Australia, say, in less than 20 years. And that nuclear electricity will then be entering a market which is probably virtually completely converted to solar and wind with batteries and pumped hydro and, and whatever for firming uh, at a relatively low cost. So then you get to the economic argument as whether nuclear could compete. But that's Australia. We're in a privileged position. You know, it's not hard to make the argument we don't need nuclear in Australia, but that doesn't apply to many other countries around the world, countries that are landlocked or have a very high population density and can't do their own solar and wind, and especially if they're landlocked, they can't do offshore wind. So there is growing interest in nuclear around the world, and especially nuclear through what's called small modular reactors, which would have the benefit of factory production rather than um, on-site um, civil engineering to build mammoth ones. So it's probable that nuclear will play a significant role going forward. It's hard to see it playing a role as significant as solar and wind, and in some countries, hydroelectricity. Thanks. And um, just on sort of alternative um, fuels, I suppose, we've had one, one person asked a question about um, biochar, that uh, Australia has a natural advantage for, for biochar. And I'll just, I'll do the two together. The second one was about using um, 
tidal power in the Kimberleys. Uh, sorry, I just need to scroll down to the to the actual question. But I'll let you answer. I'll answer, let you answer the biochar one first while I find the question. I haven't heard anybody um, really propose biochar for quite some years. Mm. It, it was really quite a topic, maybe. Mm years ago. Um, CSIRO did some work that showed that the putative benefits of improving uh, productivity on a farm and, and water retention were not easy to demonstrate in practice. So the whole argument for biochar for farm productivity um, was put into question. And then if you're looking at biochar as a means of just sequestering carbon in the ground, um, it's quite a complex process. You've got to somehow convert carbon dioxide emissions from an industrial process into a pure carbon format and um, then bury it into the ground spread over a large area. So look, I can't make an informed comment on it. All I'll say is that for quite some time now, I haven't heard it come up and there were you know, issues associated with it last time I looked at it. On the question of tidal power, Tidal power. Yeah, so just I'll just read the question so that I'm not misinforming. <laughs> um, so why not use tidal power from Kimberley's to convert iron ore to iron or bauxite to aluminium from Jane Oppenheim? So when you look at the numbers, um, there's a lot of energy in tides, there's a lot of energy in waves. Um, the reality is that generating tidal electricity or electricity from tidal power and generating electricity from wave power has been tried for several decades now. And most of the um, efforts have failed for one reason or another, not just cost, but various mechanical problems. The, the sea is harsh. It's, um, you know, it's a corrosive material. You've got moving parts in the sea when you've got tidal power generators and wave power generators. So the sea is, is corrosive. And then of course the energy uh, in the water during a storm is pretty hard too. So for those reasons, even though in principle, there's a lot of energy in tidal and uh, wave power, it's, it's, it's never got to a critical threshold. Then if you talk about the Kimberley, um, you know, the Kimberley is one of our truly cherished um, environmental zones. It's, you know, it's, it's a tourist destination. It's just environmentally beautiful. It does have fantastic tides, like eight metres. To capture them, you'd have to look at the lagoons that have narrow openings that fill up like a bathtub produce these things called horizontal falls. And you'd have to sort of basically dam that and put a turbine uh, in between I just it's up to others not me but I can't imagine that ever getting environmental approval uh, let alone proving that it's a financially um, sensible place to invest. Thank you so we've had I'm going to turn out a bit more about ATSI and the role ATSI can play a um, couple of questions what would you say would be the top three research priorities to drive further action and uptake of clean energy and emissions reduction technologies in Australia? Um, that, that's actually a difficult question and I'll probably answer it by going back to the few that I mentioned. We, we know that what we have to do is electrify everything and if there was no more research done we could probably get there but at great cost. Right, we, we need to do a lot of ongoing research to improve the way we integrate these various solutions to get the benefits of sector coupling. We need to um, do a lot of research to improve the efficiency because the better we can do the efficiency, the less impact on resources and the less financial cost to produce things. We need to do a lot of research to take the costs out of things and to uh, prove that we can do them well. So we need to do ongoing research across the board. Specifically, I see ATSI as 
having a role to try to integrate some thinking in these new major opportunities that I was mentioning. So take electrolysis. Um, it's got all the ingredients for some integrative leadership thinking from an entity like ATSI. It's an opportunity to do manufacturing in Australia at a scale that we haven't done before of complex machinery. Um, it needs to be made more and more efficient. Uh, it only works well if it's integrated into um, solar and wind and water supply and land management issues. So it requires that integrated thinking that technological scientists and engineers um, are working with all the time. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. It's, you know, everyone is going to require somebody from a unique approach and somebody from ATSI has got to say, look, I see that's interesting and maybe we'll set up a forum or maybe we'll do some work within a forum. But these are enormous opportunities, the ones that I mentioned, you know, the synthetic kerosene or synthetic jet fuel and, and direct air carbon capture and storage, um, electrolyzers, uh, just storage of hydrogen. All of these things are difficult. Yeah, well, and I, sorry. Yeah, David Abrams, Abramson uh, sort of picks up on that. He says currently ATSI has working groups that are, that are, he says lot, but I'm not sure David whether you meant not, but anyway, are well aligned with the challenges you raise. Anyway, um, and, you know, do we need, he says, what changes and structures would assist this? But I, I guess it's the point is, you know, is if we got the right structures and working groups and the like within ATSI to start um, addressing some of these research oh, challenges. Can I, can I duck, duck that, uh, Helen, say it's beyond the scope of a, a simple answer? And, and yeah, yes, sure. to answer that question, are within ATSI, within ATSI's board, within its state chairs, within its forum chairs and all the working groups? And I just realised the time because I'm multitasking here. We are actually just about on time. I was, I don't know that I can squeeze in the last one, but just to say the last question I was going to ask was about using technologies to reduce the baseload need for energy. So this is about, this is from Virginia um, Kilbourne about, you know, efficiencies and processes, but, you know, maybe we don't have time, Alan, really to, to get into that. But if you had a quick comment I'll, just in closing. I'll keep it short. I'll just say that, that it's an issue that um, the operators of electricity systems are a lot of startups are very aware of. We need to digitalize. The system is so much more complex now. We've got millions of generation sources called solar rooftops, and we've got distributed loads as well as centralized loads. And the more that we can make them all uh, share information about what they're doing through the internet with via aggregators with AEMO, the better AEMO can manage it to swap the what we used to do. We used to just look at the demand and match the supply to it. Now there's an opportunity to look at the supply and try to match the demand to it. Very, very difficult. But there's a huge awareness of that and a lot of effort being invested in it. Thank you, Alan. I better bring us, bring us to a close. So first of all, I really want to thank you on behalf of us all. You've been very generous with your answering all of these questions. Um, I thank the audience. You've posted more questions than I could get through, um, but you're obviously were very engaged. So thanks to the audience and to the to ATSI and the ACT division for hosting this webinar. And thanks again, Alan, for, for a really interesting webinar. We really enjoyed it. Um, have a good day, everybody. Thank you. We've been listening to Dr. Alan Finkel deliver the Alan Finkel oration. The oration was entitled, Getting Serious About Getting to Zero. There'll be a link in the show notes to the ATSI website where they'll eventually post a recording for today's webinar, a recording which is worth looking at because you'll be able to see the actual slides. 
That wraps up this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It's been great to have you along. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And please, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with your friends. 